Today, I have the honor once again of speaking while Pastor Lucas is away, though he actually is away this time. Last time, I thought he was going to be away, but he really was here. Um, but he really isn't here today, um, so I can say whatever I want. No, no, <laughs> no. If anything, I'm more cautious today than last time. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question, and I believe I have it on the screen. Does anyone here enjoy political dramas? Whether it is in a novel or on TV or on film, who here likes political dramas, any shows that are about politics? Not too many, apparently, today. <laughs> well, I, I happen to love shows that are about politics. Uh, the West Wing, Parks and Recreation, House of Cards, Game of Thrones, if you can count that as politics. Uh, I, have you noticed a difference in those types of shows? On one end, you have a show like The West Wing or Parks and Recreation, which are all about normal people who want to bless others, who want to enter the political arena out of a desire to help other people. One of my favorite characters in any form of media comes from the show Parks and Recreation. It's the main protagonist, Leslie Nope. She is a very low-level politician in the tiny little city uh, of Pawnee, Indiana, where she serves as the deputy director of Parks and Recreation. So not only is she not even the director of the Parks and Recreation Department, she is the deputy director, and yet she loves to go to every dry city planning meeting that there is. She is so excited to go and sit in the most dull meetings. And she has a policy manual for everything. If you look on the one shelf, she's got pictures of all of her political icons that she loves. And underneath them are stacks and stacks of policy manuals that she wrote herself, that not even her boss follows. She is one of my favorite characters because even though she has very little impact on anybody, her motivation for public service came out of love and loyalty to her neighbors. And sometimes those neighbors are really mean. They vote her out of office even when she is the only one who cares. She is uh, yelled at in public forums. One time they were trying to fill in this pit and when she was the only one who was actually trying to help the community, people were standing up and yelling at her as if it was her fault it was there. And other times in the shows, uh, some of her neighbors would even throw rotten tomatoes at her because they were so mad. And this is the only person who cared. On the other end of the spectrum, we get shows like House of Cards or Game of Thrones, which show the maniacal leaders who only desire more power. Now, the scary thing about those kinds of shows is when the actors who are portraying these characters turn out to be a little too good at method acting. I stopped watching House of Cards when I realized that the main actor, Kevin Spacey, was being investigated for sexual misconduct. The television screen began to resemble reality a little too much for me. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever voted for a politician that ended up letting you down, who misrepresented your constituency? We are coming up on another federal election, and I'm not going to be talking about politics. That's an easy way to get booed off of stage. Uh, but next year, the United States will also be up for an election. And pretty soon, both on our Canadian and American channels, we're going to be hearing all kinds of promises that these political leaders vow to represent their constituency. And they say they're going to do it to the best of their ability. And yet, when the pressure is put on them, 
And when temptation beckons, we know that they often renege on a lot of the promises they give. And so we're less likely to vote for them the next time because we feel that they did a very poor job at representing the people who elected them. Well, representation is one of the most humbling but necessary roles that we have in our world. Misrepresentation can cause serious problems. If a diplomat makes promises to a foreign emissary, which they cannot uphold, the country's reputation is destroyed. If a president is found to have committed high crimes or misdemeanors, they may be indicted by Congress for putting the nation at risk. If an ambassador offends another nation's sovereign, they have jeopardized the goodwill between each nation. Misrepresentation can end all hope for a healthy relationship between the two parties that are involved. Now, representation is not only an issue for the political arena, but in the church as well. Around the world, every day, Christ is being represented both for good and for bad. There are people who passionately demonstrate what it means to be born again. They want to bless everyone they come into contact with. Looking around this room, I can see many faces that seem to be screaming to us, Jesus has changed my life, and that's a good thing. But there are those who would rather show a harsher side of Christianity, one of legalism and law. These are often the faces that we see on the news. When you turn on CTV, CBC, I'm sure that even when they're the most biased news source, they still show only the right-wing evangelicals who seem to have it out for everyone else. They only seem to show people on TV who do a bad job at representing Christ. So what do they think we are? When they look at Christians like you and me, they think that we're stingy. One Pew Research study revealed that Christians are often the worst tippers at a restaurant. We are seen as exclusive. We like to stick to ourselves. With all the different denominations that exist within Christianity, outsiders think that we would rather disagree than agree. Isn't that right? And boundaries are put up. There are some people who think that a Catholic person is not a true Christian, when we know that there are still true people in the Catholic Church. And they think the same thing about us. And not too long ago, it used to be that the Baptist Church was the only one, or the Mennonite Church was the only one. It didn't matter what denomination you were in, but you still thought that it was exclusive. This was the right one. It's like, they're a little right, but we're, we're really right. We are seen, most of all, as two-faced hypocrites who oppose all kinds of sins that you can think of, and really, we are seen as the worst at actually committing these sins. Is this the way that all Christians are? Thankfully, God giving the glory, no, we're not all like that. But somehow, the church has allowed these types of people to represent the rest of us. And worst of all, they are representing Christ. The good news is, it does not have to be this way. Paul understood what it was like for one patch of rebels to spoil the rest of the whole group. While visiting the Corinthians in the mid-50s AD, a church which he had helped to plant, he was openly mocked by a group of rebels in the church, and rather than fight it out, he decided it was better to face humiliation and leave than to stay and ruin his own reputation. 
And so later on, he could write a letter to them showing mercy. Now, he wrote 1 Corinthians and a rather severe letter of rebuke to them. And thankfully, the church repented for the most part of their sins. And so when you read this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul was writing as their pastor, showing ultimately that the good news is above all else a message of reconciliation. So keep that in mind as you read our passage today, and you can follow along in whatever translation you have, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And I have it on the screen for each verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, that's almost a way of saying if we look crazy, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And I invite you to read this verse with me, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Continuing, Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, and this is the most important verse today, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because the original text actually skims over, we're going into chapter 6 for two verses. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, and word of God incarnate, Spirit of God, help us to read your word, to hear your word, and to respond to your word. Lord, give me the words to speak today that are yours and not my own, and may the glory go to Christ, to whom it belongs. Amen. Now, this passage is chock full of theology and great teachings, so much so that I wrote a 10-page sermon, and I wasn't even done, and I usually do about nine, and I decided that rather than preach a whole series to you today, we are going to focus on one little theme in this, in this passage 
For today, we're going to zero in on the topic of Christ has called us to be his ambassadors. The Lord Jesus has commissioned us to be his representatives to the nations, appointed as his ambassadors. Now, what does that mean, to be Christ's ambassadors? Well, as a Bible college student, I have a thing for alliteration because it helps us to memorize better. So today we're going to be looking at the three M's involved in being Christ's ambassadors. The first M we're going to look at is motivation. Paul begins this passage by describing what his motivation is for ministry. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. Right before this passage, Paul spoke about how one day Christ will judge all people. A very nice topic to talk about. Because of this, Paul is committed to persuading others to follow Jesus. He literally has just been saying the Lord is coming to judge everybody. And because of this, he says, therefore, and when you see a therefore, it means something important. Because we know the fear of the Lord, because we respect him, we show reverence for him, and we know that his judgment is firm, we are committed to persuading others. Now, it's not fear that God is going to judge us too harshly, and that's why we have to do it. Some churches that I wouldn't necessarily consider to be true Christian churches, they believe that you have to get a certain number of people into heaven in order for you to keep your seat in heaven. They teach that you have to do a certain number of things or else you could lose your spot. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, because I know of the judgment that's coming, I can't sit by and watch. I have to persuade others. He's not saying, behold, the terror of the Lord is coming. He's saying, look at me. Jesus has redeemed me. I don't have to worry about that, and neither do you when you come to Jesus. Notice what isn't his motivation for ministry. He's not driven by pride, wanting to enhance his own reputation with fancy rhetoric. Apparently, the first century Christians thought Paul was kind of a boring preacher, often comparing his preaching to a man named Apollos, who was extremely eloquent, or even to the Apostle Peter. Paul's preaching style was not flashy. He didn't speak in tongues up on the platform. He didn't draw attention to himself with great speeches and grand illustrations. But he was a big fan of run-on sentences, and he could speak for a very, very, very long period of time. Teachers today would likely take a red pen to every one of Paul's letters and be horrified. In fact, the book of Acts records how one time Paul spoke for so long that a man named Eutychus fell asleep, toppled out of a window on the third floor, and died while Paul was preaching. If I ever am worried about my bad preaching, I just have to look at the Apostle Paul. But that didn't stop Paul. He stopped, went outside, and prayed, and performed a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit that brought Eutychus back to life. And what did he do? He got back up and continued preaching. <laughs> That's not to say that Paul was not an eloquent speaker. If you've ever read the book of Ephesians, we can see he has so many beautiful illustrations. And run-on sentences were pretty common at the time. It was kind of a game of who can write the longest sentence the best. But in a society that frequently saw the likes of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, Paul was on a much lower tier. So he wasn't motivated by pride. He was also not motivated by greed. 
He never asked for money, but he continued to work as a tent maker while he went on missionary journeys. Imagine that the man that you believe is bringing the gospel to the rest of the world, the first one bringing it out to these Gentiles, he didn't ask for any money. He continued working the whole time, making tents. He continued describing his motivation in verses 12 and 13. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, if we look like lunatics, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's probably for you. Just as there exists these kinds of people in the church today, Paul knew that there were people in the Corinthian church who only served in ministry because they wanted the prestige. They wanted to look good. They wanted to have the money. They wanted the popularity. And they even wanted the bigger crown once they got to heaven. But what does the Lord say about this? In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, and look for common words as in verse 13, the word of the Lord says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Not just for church leaders, but for every Christian, this is true. Our good works must be motivated by good things, not by our own selfish desires. If we do a good work, if we feed the poor, if we clothe the naked, if we visit those in jail, if we're doing it only because we want God to look at us and see the great things we're doing, he's not going to look. But if we're doing it for a good motivation, he is pleased. And what should our motivation be? Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for the, who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was motivated by love. And we should also be motivated by love. He was motivated by compassion. He sought to persuade others to join him in following Jesus, so they too would escape God's judgment. We are transformed by the death of Christ because he's the one who paid the price for our sins. He feels called to ministry for two reasons. One, because he believes that Jesus put others before his own glory, and so we are called to put others before our own glory. And number two, to live for Christ is to live like Christ. To live for Jesus is to follow the way of Jesus. And this is the greatest foundation for ministry, wanting to give something to others because Jesus gave you everything. So the first M we're looking at today is motivation, and the second M is message. Moving on, Paul describes his message that we have as Christians. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Paul basically says, don't view others through worldly standards and values. The world teaches that this life is all there is, but we're not going to live like that. Paul thought Jesus was a false messiah, and he even saw the death of Christ as the curse of God. It was the Jewish teaching that any man who 
was to hang on a tree was cursed by God. Now, have we ever looked at somebody who is suffering, someone who is down and out, and thought to ourselves, this is the curse of God? I can admit it. There are times when I have looked at people and thought, this is God's judgment being worked out. No person who followed Christ could be going through something like that. Scripture says that is absolutely wrong. Instead, we're called to look at others through God's eyes. Instead of looking at the addict or the criminal, the wannabe, the know-it-all, the teen mom, the criminal, even the workaholic, we see the prodigal child. Instead of looking at all these people who are wandering away, we look at them and see this is the new creation that God is bringing about. And I have a role in their life. If anyone understood what it meant to be redeemed, to be a new creation, it was the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, the murderer. Saul, the persecutor. Saul, the Pharisee. The self-proclaimed chief of sinners met his match on the road to Damascus. And eventually he became known as the Apostle of Grace. He continues, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So what is our message? Reconciliation. It is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, God reconciling the world to himself. It's his initiative. It's God's work. Now, the Greek word used for reconciliation, because I love to look at the Greek, the Greek is katalage. It almost sounds like catalog, katalage. It has a secular connotation in the ancient Greek. It's used as a political and diplomatic term referring to the harmony established between enemies by peace treaties. Katalage. It is referring to an enemy becoming a friend. So God is establishing peace between us and himself. God is giving us his peace treaty. What's interesting is that God is establishing this peace through his followers. He has entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to Paul and to us in the 21st century. But what does this ministry look like? This leads us to our final M today. Our third M is mission. The mission of every believer is revealed in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, an ambassador is a representative from one nation to a foreign country. And by the time of Paul, ambassadors came to represent the emperor himself. They would broker peace treaties engage in economic trade, and they would even declare war. And what are the characteristics of a good ambassador? Firstly, a good ambassador does not speak to please the audience that they're speaking to, but they're speaking to please the king whom they represent. The phrase, don't shoot the messenger, would really fit well here. Sometimes ambassadors would bring a message that was very hard to deliver, but they served their king, and so they were loyal in carrying out their mission. Secondly, a good ambassador does not speak on their own authority, which means that their opinions and their demands mean very little. 
They say what they're commissioned to say. They don't have the right to change the message if they want to. And that leads us to the third characteristic that an ambassador is more than a simple messenger, but is also a representative. They represent the values of the one that sent them. We believe when the Canadian ambassador meets with a foreign dignitary, it's as if the prime minister himself were meeting with them. Now, we might not always want that to be the case, but it is the case that sometimes when our ambassadors go to another country, they represent the leader of our nation. The honor and the reputation of the nation they're representing are in the hands of our ambassadors. That's why it's important to pray for our ambassadors, that they don't mess up. Now, we are Christ's ambassadors. We represent Christ. We represent the kingdom of God, which Jesus has established. And like Paul, we serve in a foreign land, representing King Jesus. Our king has given us a message, and God himself is making his appeal through us. A few moments ago, we talked about how the Greek word for reconciliation was often used by a diplomat for peace treaties. Well, that is how we represent Christ here on earth. Like Paul, we are tasked with announcing God's peace treaty. This peace treaty is for those who trust in Christ to free them from sin and death. As Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 calls it, we preach the gospel of peace. We proclaim as Christ's ambassadors, be reconciled to God. And we're called to represent Christ in our day-to-day activities. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know what it means to represent Christ, look at Christ's example himself. In verse 21, Paul continues, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If anyone knew what it was like to be an ambassador, it was Jesus. Christ was an ambassador. The Son of God took on human flesh and lived among us. And he represented God, but more importantly, he represented us. He represented humanity. He didn't just call himself the Son of God. He chose to use the term Son of Man. He identified himself with our sin so that we might be restored to our relationship with God. Jesus turns us from enemies of God into friends of God. He announced the peace treaty between God and man. Now this verse, verse 21, is one of the deepest theological statements of the Bible, and so for that reason, we're not going to look at it too hard, but in this one verse, we learn so much about what Christ did for us. God the Father regarded and treated Jesus, the one who knew no sin, as if he was sin itself. For our sake, God treated our sin as if it belonged to Jesus instead. The theological term for that is that Christ became our substitute. You could also say he was our representative on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was hanging there not as himself, not as the Son of God. He was hanging there as the Son of Man, our ambassador dying for our sin. He paid the price for our sins when we couldn't. He knew there was no way that we could do it. And so God did another thing. He exchanged our sins with Christ's righteousness. It wasn't enough just to take away our sin. He gave us another form of Christ as our ambassador because he represented our sin and he switched it 
We took his righteousness, all his goodness. There are so many theological terms summed up in there, and I don't want to confuse anyone. So if you're interested, I encourage you to do your own study of this passage because there's so much at the heart of what we believe as Christians. But I'll leave you with this image for this verse. Standing at the embassy of God, he didn't recognize us. We appeared like strangers, foreigners, sinners who were denied entry. But Jesus was our representative. He was our ambassador. And he showed his credentials to God the Father and said, I recognize them. This is one of my citizens. I can vouch for them. God came in the form of Jesus as our ambassador. And because of this, he calls us to be his ambassadors. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He identifies with him a lot because he's calling the people to repentance and perseverance. The difference is, though, that while Isaiah was announcing something in the future, Paul was saying the time is now. The time is now that we are experiencing salvation. The time is now that we are announcing to the people God is listening. And so he says, do not come to Christ and turn away. Come and, sh- and, come and stay. Come and share in the blessings that God is beginning to pour out on you. So what does this mean for us today? Because it's really nice to read through a passage and see some of the Greek words, but if it doesn't do something for you, then I haven't done my job. So I'm going to leave you with two applications. I had so many more, but we'd be here for another hour, and I don't think you want to do that. I'm sure some of us are hungry, so we're going to look at just two. The first one is embody the gospel. Now, we represent the new creation, the new covenant. How would it look if Christ's ambassadors looked more like a citizen of this world? And I'll even say, what would it mean to other people who didn't believe in Jesus if they looked at us and said that we looked more like the kingdom of Satan than the kingdom of Christ? As a new creation, as a new creation under Christ, we need to just radiate love joy, peace, all the fruits of the Spirit. We need to show people who Christ is just by them looking at our face. And you know, some of us, if we are just sitting by ourselves, we probably have an angry look on our face. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad for that. But when you see somebody at the grocery store who is annoying you, do not respond likewise. If someone cuts you off in traffic, represent Christ. I know that's hard. There are times when we just want to yell at that person in front of us, the light's green, go. But we are representing Christ. We are supposed to show mercy in our day-to-day life. When somebody upsets us, we can respond by yelling at them or by turning the other cheek. And our motivation shouldn't just be because we're trying to impress God. Our motivation, like Paul's, has to be from a place of love. So embody the gospel. And the second one, and I think this is the hardest one, adapt your messages for new audiences. Now, Paul wrote that when he spoke to the Jews, he acted like a Jewish man. 
When he spoke to the Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile. That's not being two-faced. That is adapting the message that is going to new people. When a missionary goes to another country, do you think that they go and stay exactly like a North American? They go and integrate into that culture. And they do it because they're trying to show others that Christ wants to be a part of that community. They're not doing it because they're worldly. And it's the same for us here in North America. We're so afraid of becoming like the world that we kind of distance ourselves, but we are supposed to be in the world, not of it. We're supposed to be in and integrating ourselves into this community. There are some of us here who are amazing at that. I can think of a number of examples where people from this congregation go out and deliver meals to people. People go into bars and just sit with people and share the gospel. And usually the way they share the gospel is just by not judging and sitting there and listening to the person's struggles. The gospel message is always the same, but the way we deliver it is different. In Acts 17, Paul famously preached to the city of Athens, finding common ground with them. He quoted their own philosophers back to them, and he didn't judge them. He gave them equal respect. During the Great Awakening in 1741, a new way of preaching kind of came forward. Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon in North American history. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In this sermon, he had an image of God holding the unbeliever over the lake of fire by a tiny thread. And the only thing that kept that believer's thread from snapping was if they turned to Jesus and he would pull them back. In, in, in 1856, C.H. Spurgeon preached a kind of similar sermon on Psalm 7, which says, If the sinner turn not, God will wet his stone. He will wet his sword, I should say. The title of his sermon was Turn or Burn. At these revival meetings and church services, you know how many people came forward? Thousands upon thousands of people came forward and gave their lives to Jesus. This is known as fire and brimstone preaching. And it's not the first time it's happened, and it still happens sometimes today. But do you think it has the same impact today as it did back in the 1700s and the 1800s? I have go so far as to say that the Turner Burn accidentally burned a lot of communities. <laughs> that in the process of people coming to Jesus, hearing these songs like we sang earlier, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. But another line of that song says, if you tarry till you're better, if you wait, if you hold back, if you tarry, you will never come at all. They knew the people needed some tough love. They needed to hear that God was coming. Most of these people had grown up in Christian homes, but they had wandered away. So hearing about the fear of the Lord, God's judgment was so important for them to be drawn back. But today, I think that a lot of people in our communities have never heard anything about Jesus. And if the first thing that we tell them is, Christ is coming to judge you, watch out, we have failed them. I've been taking a course on the Pentateuch throughout the summer, the first five books of the Bible. And my professor really gave me a mind-boggling thought that God, when he wrote his grand story of the Bible, he didn't start by saying, humans fell and are sinners. He started by saying God is good, God had a plan, God loved his creation, 
And it's in chapter 2 and 3 that they start to fall away. We should be like this in our preaching, in our going out to people. We shouldn't start with the turn or burn anymore. It had its place. But if you start to see some of the hymns towards the end of the 1700s and the 1800s, you find they are saying, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And what's he calling? Come home. He's not saying, you awful sinner, come and repent. He's saying, you who are weary, come home. We need to know that God is looking out for us and that he will vindicate us, but some of us don't need to hear that God is judge. Some of us need to hear that God is our Father, that he loves us and accepts us, even when we're not perfect. And for some, Christ is our older brother who will watch out for us and walk with us through the hard times. In each of these, we represent Christ. And representing Christ is one of the highest calls that we have as Christians who bear his name. I wouldn't like it if people walked around as Thorntonians and were really mean. Because me, Zach Thornton, I want people to represent me well. Christ is the same. We bear his name. So we must do this to the best of our abilities. I invite the worship team to come up and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that the global church has done a poor job at representing you. That we have allowed the angry people, those who are legalistic, to represent us in our day-to-day -day lives. And so, Lord, we repent of allowing this and we come back to you and we promise today that we are going to show people who you are. And they're going to turn to us and say those are Christians because they'll know we are Christians by our love. We offer this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.